This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 129 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Will Nitza, the founder and CEO of IQ Bar. IQ Bar is a brain and body nutrition startup based in Boston, best known for their keto, vegan, plant protein bars packed with 12 grams of protein and six brain nutrients. In this episode, Will shares with us his journey from growing up in New Jersey, playing competitive soccer, to studying neuroscience and psychology at Harvard, to his first job after college selling software, to learning about the impacts of food on our brains, which inspired him to start IQ Bar. We talk about CPG hypergrowth and valuations, how he hacked his way into launching a successful Kickstarter campaign, and the lifestyle implications that come with being an entrepreneur. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, or leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Will, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining the show. I'm really excited to hear your story in building IQ Bar. Yeah, no, pleasure to be on. So before we dive in, let's just tell everybody what IQ Bar is. I know it's, you know, this awesome brain health plant-based protein bar, but you might have a better way to describe it. Yeah, sure. So we're a brain and body nutrition company called IQ Bar, but IQ Bar is also the name of our hero, quote unquote, product line. But we also, we're in the process of platformizing ourselves. We, we also came out with a hydration uh, stick pack product called IQ Mix, and we'll, we'll roll out additional products over time, IQ fill in the blank. But yeah, predominantly we are a plant-based keto protein bar company. So where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in northern New Jersey in a town called Morristown and went to high school in Western Mass. And between high school and college, I lived in Cape Town, South Africa for a year. Wow. How was that? It was great. It was great. Cape Town's phenomenal. I, it was 2010. So uh, it was the year the World Cup was there, which was very exciting. I'm a, I'm a soccer fan. So that was awesome. And went to a, a number of games and, and then just experiencing that the country was 
a wild experience. And then I uh, went to Harvard undergrad. So I went back to Boston or back to Mass and, and, and spent four years there. And then I've been in, I just stayed. I've been in Boston to current day. Nice. Well, let's go back to your childhood. I want to know more about little Will. Yeah, what was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? Yeah, my name is Willie at the time. Willie, like uh, free yeah. Willie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was like painful, you know, because you get teased. But uh But I mean, you're I mean, free Willie was like such a popular thing as a kid. I mean Yeah. But I guess I, I mean don't know. It's a, such a killer kid-like. whale is kind of badass. That it is. It is. I mean, yeah, maybe I should have leaned into free Willy more than I did in retrospect. Um, but little <laughs> Sounds like Willy, you were pushed into something else. <laughs> well, I was like, I need to get to Will or Bill. Like, what's my path to get there? Um, but anyway, so what is what was what little Willie like? I, you know, I wasn't like the kid with a lemonade stand or anything romantic like that I don't know I was a pretty normal kid I was obsessed with sports I was obsessed with winning like just being the best at as many things as I could be the best at why where does that come from I have no idea I don't know I'm the youngest of three maybe that has something to do with it I'm I'm not always got something to prove to the older siblings yeah, I mean, there's definitely sibling rivalry. I mean, that's probably a big piece of it. You always want to be better than your brothers at like anything, and you like hate them. And yeah, so you have two older brothers. You're saying? Yeah, two older brothers. Although we didn't play the same sports, or so it wasn't even that. You know, neither of them played soccer, and soccer was really my thing. I genuinely don't know why I was like obsessed with winning, but I was. Maybe you just like, you know, hungry for parents' attention or something like that as the youngest, maybe like you wanted to find your thing and be really no, good. No, because I got their attention. Like that's what the youngest you the baby. gets the most attention. Yeah. Right. So, and I wasn't even like, I want to impress my parents. Although of course it's better to impress your parents than not, but that wasn't like the like fire within me. I, I, I think I'm just the, like that I, I really don't know to be honest with you is one of your like grandparents like that have you looked into your ancestry like do you think it's in your blood I mean I guess my grandparents are kind of like that I don't know I haven't really looked into the lineage thing and where, where did it come from yeah nature versus nurture right which which one is it it's not nurture it's not Why? nurture <laughs> because my that? parents aren't like that and they didn't really cultivate that type of of ethos in the household. Mm. Like they didn't the, like create competition or anything between you. No, guys. no, quite the contrary. Hmm. Like they wanted every everything to be copacetic amongst the the three boys. So it's a good question. I haven't thought about this one for a very, very long time. Like I haven't thought about my childhood for a bit. So I don't know. I'm gonna have to pontificate on this. It's one. a big part of who you are. So you got to reflect back i think it's like a moment i think there's who you are and then i think momentum is just so massive so like turning one win into another into another into another and so you if you can get good at something it gets more fun and then you do it more and then you get more good at it and then it's more fun and if you find the right channels or paths or passions or whatever 
and you establish momentum, then yeah, it can carry you all the way from childhood to, to I'm 31 now. I think it can also not like you could hit a couple snags and now you're sitting on your couch or whatever, eating popcorn. That's for sure. That can happen too. Just get knocked down. It's hard to get up. But when you say momentum, are you talking about sports and maybe soccer particularly? Like, is there an experience that you've had where you started getting better and better and better at it? And it was more and more fun. Yeah, you need like points of affirmation on any curve or any journey. So like with soccer, it was, it's like, what is your Super Bowl of that era? And for me, the Super Bowl of that era was winning the New Jersey State Cup. That was like the thing that I was working towards. And that meant we were the best team in New Jersey, like all of New Jersey's competitive soccer. And it's a, actually maybe surprised to, to learn that it's a super competitive state i mean it, it way over indexes on like quality of youth athletics so so that was the thing and then i did it you know we like got to the finals two years we didn't win and then finally we won and then we had one when i was an eighth grader and i was like okay there's a feather in the cap and then i could like that's the m- momentum thing and it's like okay i now i think i'm pretty good at the sport so now i'm like confident i'm gonna go into freshman year and i'm gonna i think i can make varsity and then i did and then I was like, okay, what's the next thing? I want to be captain. What, what needs to happen for me to be captain? And then I did what it needed to take. Then I became captain. And then, oh, so this is an interesting, actually, now that we're talking about it, I'm just thinking through the whole arc and the mo- momentum thing. Then the next thing was like, oh, can I play D1? Can I play D1 soccer? And I thought that was the first point where I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm good enough. And so I got recruited to play D3. So I was going to go to Amherst and play soccer. So I was pretty confident I could play D3, but I got, then I got an off the waiting list at Harvard. It was like hard to pass that up. And then I stopped playing soccer. Like the momentum died because I was very confident I could not play at that level. And I think objectively that was probably, probably right. I mean, I, maybe I could, I physically could, but it's like, I would really be fitting a square peg into a round hole on that one. And then momentum died. Got to find a new vector to channel competitive energy. Right. So what did you choose? Well, to be honest, I didn't choose all that much my first couple of years of college. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Took a break. I was, <laughs> I was taking a break, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, learning who I was, learning about myself is a nice uh, euphemism for that period of time. But no, I mean, like eventually, I think I was in, I was in the mode of what do I care about? What do I want to do with my life? And trying to get inspired by academic disciplines. And I couldn't find any. So because I couldn't find any, I think that's why I wasn't, I didn't have a passion project. Then I found one, which was psychology and neuroscience. I, I was like, oh, I, I hated economics. I hated computer science. I hated math. Not hated. I just, you know, it was a chore. It was, oh, I, was, I didn't look forward to it. Um, and then I went to psych and neuroscience classes. I was like, whoa, this is actually fun. Like, I actually, this is not a chore. I'm happy to do the reading for this next section. It was a weird feeling. And uh, I think is the feeling that, you know, you, 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 you want to be, you want to be doing that thing. And then 
once I find those things, it's just my personality. Like I get obsessed with them. So I would just read everything on psychology and neuroscience. I took as many. And then I was like, I want to get a 4.0 in psychology and neuro. I want to get an A, flat A, in every psych and neuroscience class I take, which is like whatever, 20 classes over the course of several years. And then that was my like, like Super Bowl. I was, and I did. And I'm I did. sure your parents like love that. <laughs> you know, that you were competitive about getting A's. I don't think they cared, actually. Really? Again, the, the, I mean, again, it's always nice. It's always like, you know, good work. But that wasn't, it was never for their approval. It was, again, I don't know what it was. It was something in me where I just felt, I think a lot of it was I wanted to be as good or better than my peers which doesn't answer the question of why, but that was just was the setup. And I thought, okay, I can get obsessed with this field and therefore get really, really, really good and be at the highest level of this particular niche. Whereas my friend over here is like really good at computer science. And like, I can't compete with him on that vector, but I can compete with him on like how good I am within a field more broadly. That's interesting. So you found another thing to give you momentum and affirmation, right? Which I think is really important along the way, like you said, these points of affirmation to like keep you motivated. Yeah. And that like when you get an A and then another A and another A, you're like, whoa, okay. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable about this. Like I could speak knowledgeably about this. So yeah, you need the, there's, I'm sure some perfect ratio of like grinding it out 10 units for every one unit of affirmation or something like that. Right. And so what did you do after college? What was one of your first jobs? So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew what, so I loved psych and neuroscience. That didn't map to any profession other than, let's say, being a psychologist or a psychiatrist or, you know, going into academia. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. I always find it really funny. Sorry, I just find it funny that people study things for so long and then actually don't do something in the profession. I mean, I get it that it's like fun, but did you ever feel like knowing that you didn't want to use that, I guess, in the working world in a way, right? Like in a direct kind of professional way, were you ever kind of like, hmm, maybe I should change majors or I don't know. Like, well, I always find that interesting. I, I tried to map it to a, I tried to make it work. Like, because I also really like business. And so I thought, I thought, okay, what's the intersection of business and psychology and neuroscience? And the closest I could come up with was organizational behavior. And so I was like, okay, where are the world-class organizational behavior people? Because that's like an actual profession. And so I found a, a Harvard Business School professor of organizational behavior. And I cold emailed the guy. I was like, hey, I, you don't know me. I have no background in the space, but, but you know, I have a 4.0 in all these classes and I'm, and you don't have to pay me, but I'd like to do work for you. Like, can I just do free work for you? Research work? They're like, absolutely okay. not. We hate that. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, it's not a no brainer actually. Cause it's like, oh, do I want to take on this like mentor mentee thing? Like do I have bandwidth? But anyway, the guy was like, yes, basically. And then I got to sit in on all these HBS classes, which is all a cool ancillary benefit, but, and then, but still that didn't help me. Cause I was like, I still couldn't map that to a profession. And so then for a while I was like, I'm going to be a CEO coach, 
which is this like weird cottage industry. You're like the psychologist kind of, of super high powered CEOs. And you're like helping them to get the most out of themselves and you make a lot of money. So I was like, okay, I'm in it. So who's the, the best CEO coach in America? Like I need to find this person. And I found this guy and then I got connected into this guy and that kind of went nowhere. And then I was like, I hit a ceiling. I was like, this isn't mapping to anything. And I'm graduating in like six months. Like I got to do something. So I took a job sort of just by default in software. I was sales and marketing associate for a software startup in Boston. And I was selling and marketing like the most esoteric arcane software you can imagine. I was selling like $200,000 a year supply chain and operations software for oil and gas companies. Yeah. So I was flying to Houston like every, every other week and slinging software. <laughs> slinging software. I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. I've done yeah. that before. So you were like, this is, I mean, how long did it take until you were like, okay, I, this is, I'm done. I'm not slinging software anymore. I, I thought for a second, like, well, maybe I could do this for 30 years. Like, is this what, what is, because I didn't like it just at, at its core. I was like, I don't love going into the office, but I thought maybe like, that's the case for everyone. Like, no, maybe that just is work. I mean, it was my first job. So, so I was like, okay, maybe that just is work. And you just kind of dread Mondays. And that's like, that's life. I'll do that for 30 years and I'll climb the corporate ladder. And you know that, I, that crossed my mind many times, but eventually I was like, ah, like, there's gotta be more to life. Yeah. There's yeah. Yeah. Like I couldn't accept that. And I, I did, I was always kind of entrepreneurial or I thought about, I got really into like startups became cool when I was like in my early twenties. And so I got into that whole scene and like hustling and have a side hustle and yada, yada, like the Gary Vee thing. And it just became cool. And so I got really into it. And so I, I did while I was in that first job, I did think a lot about, well, what if I did my own thing? What would that thing be? I don't know how to code. So it's probably not a tech company. Like what could I do? And then just randomly concurrently, I got super into nutrition at that time. So this was when like whole 30 and paleo and all these diets were blowing up and people were eating cleaner and people started caring about health and health food and health beverages. And I started feeling physically bad and that, that was due to my bad diet. And so I switched to a healthier diet and felt the benefits of it. So I, I got like bought into it and got kind of obsessed with nutrition. And then I read a book called Grain Brain. And that was like the big aha for me, which was basically like just looking at the intersection of, of nutrition and cognition. So the, the, things you put in your body impact how your brain works today, but also the things you put in your body over the course of like 30, 40, 50 years impacts how your brain either degrades or doesn't degrade over that period of time. You know, do you get Alzheimer's? Do you get Parkinson's? Do you, do you just have cognitive decline to a greater degree than you otherwise would have? And so for me, that was like, whoa, like I never really thought about the mind gut connection. And then that turned into a fascination with brain food. 
Well, wait, can you give us a little lesson on that? Because you're kind of like saying it, but you're not giving us the facts. Can you share some kind of like insights that you learn? So, I mean, is it true that green, like for the people that know nothing about what you're talking about in terms of greens and unhealthy stuff? Yeah, sure. And there were people, there's always 10 people who will dispute anything, but the basic concept, the basic thesis of the book is standard American diet centers on high carbohydrate foods, like think bread, rice, pasta, et cetera. And we've been told that that's good. Like we've had the food pyramid and all that. And, and uh, at the base of the food pyramid are high carb things. And we all ate cereal growing up and, you know, we just all ate a ton of carbs. And what happens when you eat carbs is it, you, your body breaks it down into blood glucose, blood sugar. Uh, what happens when, and, and effectively that blood sugar floods into your bloodstream and your body produces a bunch of, an, of a hormone called insulin and insulin ferries that blood glucose out of your bloodstream and into, you know, the cells throughout your body and it creates fat tissue and has a bunch of other negative impacts. For example, your, your energy spikes and then plummets, right? I feel like most people think that only happens with sugar. Like if you eat a cookie, that'll happen. But I don't know if it's so related or obvious about that happening with carbs. Yeah. Well, eat a slice of pizza at noon and tell me how you feel at uh, two. But, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, he actually has this epic PowerPoint slide where it's like a two by two and it's like a banana, a tablespoon of sugar, a slice of bread. And then I forget what the fourth thing was. And he's like, which of these do you think spikes your blood glucose and thus insulin the most? And everyone's like, oh, the sugar, right? And it was the slice of bread. Wow. And so your, your body doesn't, so you can break down sugar more quickly, right? It's more like quickly, readily available to, to convert, but the bread is going to convert too, unless it, unless it's high in fiber or something that's going to slow the seepage of glucose into the bloodstream, it's going to convert into blood glucose, just like a tablespoon of sugar is right. So your body doesn't care. Your body's going to break it down. The net end result is going to be very, very similar. And I think what you said, a lot of people think as well, they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's like bread that's not unhealthy. And it's, yeah. So, so, okay. So you feel like a terrible short-term result because you're fatigued or lethargic. Everyone gets brain fog. It's a relatable sensation at three, it's the 3 PM feeling. It's a literal like codified phenomenon. And but then the far more insidious thing is, okay, what if you do that every day, which a lot of people do, you know, that it's called a standard American diet for, for a reason. What happens to your organs over like decades and decades and decades? What, effectively, what happens when you have elevated blood glucose for like 40 years? What does that do to your body? And basically what hit, that's the, the whole thesis of the book was you, you get Alzheimer's, you get Parkinson's, you get terrible cognitive decline, your IQ drops X amount of points. Basically your brain degrades. Do they say the same about red meat? I'm just curious. Cause my grandmother like is really suffering on the memory thing. And she has probably steak every day, like rare steak every day. No, I don't believe like, there's gotta do. be a correlation, but maybe it's the red wine she drinks too. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't believe so on the steak. I mean, most people talk about, you know, saturated fats and steak and 
cholesterol. Cholesterol is really the big one, uh, which I guess is independent is related to cognitive function. But I think people get more worried about uh, cardiovascular stuff as it relates to to red meat, basically having a heart attack. But no, I mean, the prevailing wisdom is like carbs are, you know, there's three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbs. And and fat in a vacuum is actually great. It's it's very clean and, and protein is great. And, but carbs are not great and carbs plus fat are also not great. So it's a, it's a bad combination, but like meat protein, the red meat thing and the animal products thing, that's still like the most hotly debated topic. Half of people will tell you, great, go eat 10 steaks a day. And the other half will will say, absolutely not. You need to be eating a plant-based diet and, and yada, yada. But pretty much everyone agrees eating a ton of carbs is bad. Yeah. So you realize you kind of go down this rabbit hole of health and you realize this is something that you're really passionate about. How did you come up with the idea for IQ Bar? What was the moment? Where were you? What were you doing? What was your aha moment? Okay. So I also, in tandem with reading Grain Brain or or slightly before or slightly after, I don't remember, I read a book called Mission in a Bottle, which is, it's actually a graphic novel format, but it's a business book. And it's written by a guy named Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. These two guys who started uh, Honest Tea. So the founders of Honest Tea. And the one guy went to Harvard and he, there's a lot of weird, uncanny parallels. So I was like, huh, I'm, I'm this guy. He's just like a generation ahead of me. And he had, taking a consulting job. He didn't really like it. He was walking through the park one day and he was drinking overly sweet iced tea. And he said, this is how the legend goes, at least. He was like, why is this so sweet? And why is there no less sweet version? Like I would like this way more if it was less sweet. That was it. As simple as that. That was their whole thing. Just take sugar, cut sugar in half and literally the entirety of their value proposition and use like organic tea leaves and a few other things. But the main bedrock was that. And so I like was engrossed by the book, fascinated. And so at first I was going to start a drink company because I was like, I'm this guy. I want to start a drink company. It's so cool. I could do it. I know how to brew tea. What made you feel like you're like, I'm this guy? Like, what about this guy was like, he's my dude? He's just like, there are a lot of parallels. He was doing consulting. He didn't like it. He's like, I'm not fulfilled. I was like, hmm, that's me. I'm doing this other thing. I'm not that fulfilled. And I just love the grittiness and the grind and the like adventure of creating something from nothing in your kitchen. And I don't know, it was just, it was a really good story and he, and he, they were good storytellers and it was just very compelling. So you were inspired. You were just mostly inspired. It's, it's like a really good teacher can make you care about algebra if they're just like a really good teacher and they, they use analogies well and yet, and a bad one, you would hate algebra. It's, for whatever reason, the story just like clicked with me. And Have you met this guy? guy? So I was like, Have okay. you met him in person? Yeah, yeah. I cold nice. emailed him and I was like, I, I love the book. I want to meet like, are you ever going to be around Boston? He, he was like, I'm in two weeks, I'm speaking in New Hampshire. So I like rented a car. I didn't have a car, I rented a car. I drove up just to meet nice. the guy. Had a dinner what? with him. You had a dinner off of a cold. Well, 
Well, so he it was he was speaking at this event, and then like at the end of the event, there was just a dinner, and I he was like, "Yeah, come sit at my table." So I sat. You're at like, the table. "Where are you sitting?" It wasn't like a sit one next on one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you so after the event? You're like, "Hey, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm the guy that cold emailed you. Remember me?" Well, yeah, he, he invited me. He was like, "Send me a That's ticket." That's awesome. So he knew I was coming. Anyway, so you were asking like, "How did I?" arrive at brain food it, it was i was like okay i'm this guy i'm gonna start a drink company then i was gonna do a a drink company where it's like gender specific like women need more folate for example than men and there's just like a very subtle nutritional difference differences in needs i was like okay i'm gonna make a, like a men's version and a women's version that's gonna be my differentiator and that fizzled out and i went through like 10 other ideas and then i read grain brain and i was like i was like okay this is crazy that the food you eat impacts your brain surely there must be products out there like this like are like brain food quote unquote and there just weren't which was crazy to me and i was like okay maybe there's no demand for it but then there was demand because there was bulletproof coffee and that was like a cognitive story and there's these other like brain related things in different form factors so to me that that signal that the demand was there and then I was like, okay, like, this looks like a white space. There's no ready to eat packaged brain food. So, you know, light bulb off. Were you just at home, like researching and when the light bulb went off, like, where were you? What were you doing when that happened? Yeah, I was on my couch on my computer. Yeah. And it was just like a spark. Yeah, basically. I think I'm lucky I wasn't in New York. I would probably be at like with a bunch of friends at brunch or something, but I was in Boston a lot of my friends moved away. I had a lot of free time. I was kind of bored and I was looking to be inspired. And so I figured this out and I'm like, all right, I'm going to devote all my time. Looking to be inspired. I like that. You have to, you're looking to be inspired. I'm always on the hunt for learning. How does one seek inspiration? Like how does one get inspired? How does, how do these moments happen? I think it's trial and error largely. Yeah, but you said something interesting. You're like, if I were in New York, I'd probably be out to dinner, which would be me. I'd be, I would totally be that person out to dinner, like if all the time in New York. So. Because there's like two different, I think everything comes back from physio physiology. Like how does something make you feel quite literally? Like how does it make your serotonin and dopamine release? And, and going out to a dinner with friends, does that it's like a cheap cheap knockoff version not not that's like not the right way of framing it but it's you can get a nice physiological response to that but it's like fleeting it's ephemeral and so you can also get it from getting obsessed with an exciting new project and so there's kind of two ways of going about getting that same high is this, is this across all humans or is this just entrepreneurs I don't know because I'm not in someone else's head. I try, I, I have a, it's a problem. With I thought mine. you studied this neuroscience stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, but entrepreneurs are like psychopaths. Like This is I true. This is why I interview you people to get in your heads. And also to feel like I'm not alone in the craziness. <laughs> well, I think it is fairly universal that people like being passionate about whatever. I think passion is a fairly universally sought after thing but i think people seek seek it out in different intensities like some people they're like 
yeah, I'd like to get passionate, but I'm not going to do any of the requisite things to like arrive at that thing that I'm passionate about. How do you do that? How do you arrive at your passionate thing? Trial and error, trial and error. Like do 10 things. Three of them will be more fun than the other seven. And then do all those three things. And then one of them will be like the most fun. And then just go all in on that one. Are you talking about like researching down little rabbit holes? Like if someone wants to start a business, they're like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I just don't have an idea yet. And I don't know what I'm passionate about. There's a lot of pressure, I think, on entrepreneurs to find their passion. Yeah, I mean, the entrepreneur thing, I actually think it's relatively, relatively simple. It's do you love creating something from nothing? And do you love business? Every flavor of entrepreneurship, it all is working backwards from that. Basically, do you like risk? Are you a gam? Like every entrepreneur is a gambler at, at heart. Are you comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty on yourself yeah like do you like roller coasters (laughs) do do you just like like to be thrown off a cliff (laughs) into the water yeah do you like chaos do you like chaos and have to swim to the shore yourself and yeah because like you can get passionate about xyz which is like the actual product or service you're doing but what you'll learn pretty damn quick is you're going to spend 90 percent of your time just on business Like I had this post I did about this where let's say you want to start a yoga pants business. You're like, I love yoga and I do it like four times a week. All my friends are into yoga. And so like, man, that'd be fun to start a yoga pants business. And then you start the business and what you learn very quickly is you spend 0.5% of your time on touching, feeling, thinking about yoga pants and 99.5% in like Excel and QuickBooks. And manufacturers. And like trying to hire people. Yeah, and manufacturers, they sent the wrong thread count for your yoga pants and they like stitched it backwards. Yeah. And so if you're not like masochistically interested or ideally in love with that, the latter set of activities, then it no one cares and it's not going to work that you love yoga and or yoga pants. So, yeah, and I think that's kind of universal across whatever flavor of entrepreneurship you're doing. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get to delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. 
Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind, am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So you get this idea. Why bars? Like how did the bars come up first for you? And what were some of the things that you did to prepare to launch your first business? Bars are completely arbitrary. I have no like inherent interest in bars. Um, it's sort of like Tesla's a software company that happens to have cars as a form factor. Like that's kind of how I think about it. Bars is just the form factor. What's the point? The point is brain and body nutrition. And really at that time it was really just brain nutrition. And then it was like, okay, how do you get nutrition into a body? Well, it has to have a form factor. Well, okay. What form factors map well to mashing 10 things together to get like numerous nutrients? Well, it could be you know cookie it could be a bar it could be you know there's a relatively limited number of things and then what are the market sizes of all those things how feasibly could i do it etc cetera, etc cetera. and you just sort of list out all the variables and then you lot you arrive at bars like okay this makes sense it's a huge market you can mash a bunch of stuff together and like that's the form factor it, it, the market's growing over time there's just a bunch of attractive things. And then, you know, you you go all in on it. You're like, okay, that's the thing. Let's start executing against that. And so what did you do about fundraising? At what point did you start deciding that you wanted to take on investors? I know that you was reading some of the news and press about IQ bar. And I know you raised a seed round of a million, I think 2019, 2.8 million last year in February, What's been your experience in, in fundraising? What challenges did you face along the way? Yeah, so there's fundraising is quite, it's quite tough for CPG brands. When I was starting out, I literally had a couple of friends who started a tech company. I think they raised like 3 million bucks on a $10 million pre-money valuation and on a PowerPoint deck. And I was like, damn, that's cool, but I cannot do that. I wish I could do that, but I can't do that. No one would ever give me that for the, like a bar concept. And, and so what, like, how do I get there? There's only one path and that's sales. What's sexy in technology is the idea and what's sexy in CPG is sales. Like, did you, how much of the thing did you sell? And so it was like, okay, how do I solve that, that problem? How do I bridge that gap? And so Basically, the concept was I'll do a Kickstarter because that'll help me. I'll get all these pre-sales 
and I'll, I'll demonstrate to this world of investors, hey, I have all these sales and now I'm going to justify this big valuation that I think I'm worth. Because I, I, I learned very early through some good advice, basically be obsessive about equity and ownership and fight tooth and nail every point of equity. Like if you're giving it away, give it away in as stingy a way as possible and just hold on to that. And so I was like, how do I hold on the most equity? I'm going to, I'm going to do, do this Kickstarter. So that was the goal. And then I did it. That's a whole other story. I could spend an hour talking about how we succeeded in Kickstarter. Right. Cause you guys actually had a, you have a very successful story with that, right? I think you guys tripled your goal in just a few weeks. Yeah. So the goal, and you set the goal artificially low, you set it at the whole thing, just like any platform, you're trying to game the algorithm. So we set it at, I think we set it at 10,000 and our goal was 50,000. We're like, this is a smash success. We sell 50,000. Cause we had sold $0 to date. I mean, these were literally the first dollars coming in. Right. So you're account. like, even 10 grand is like a lot from zero. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're selling phantom product. The product does not exist. Right. Um, you're like, who wants to be a guinea pig? <laughs> yeah. And, and which the whole, how it's like Wikipedia. It's like, how does this even work? How does humanity like align to make this work? I feel the same way about Kickstarter. Like who are all these people who are just giving you money that with the proposition of like, yeah, maybe I'll send you something in six months. You know, it's a weird phenomenon, but it, it is a legitimate phenomenon. So without going too down, down the rabbit hole and how we made it work, basically I didn't have any money. We couldn't, we knew we couldn't make it work with buying Facebook ads and things like that because we would just, the conversion rate would be so low because people don't convert on Kickstarter campaigns, blah, blah, blah. Read a bunch of blog posts. None of them really gave me the right, you know, framework to such that I thought I could succeed with it. So I kind of created my own and, and I did a couple really objectively, I would say crazy things. Like I, in the Harvard library, there are these things called red books, which have like John Smith, I now I live in Newport, Rhode Island. I have two kids and my Gmail is john.smith at gmail.com. It would literally give their, this was all alumni who had ever gone to Harvard. And I, I just took pictures of every friggin' page and then did, converted it to pictures to text and scraped all the email addresses. And then I found a login to Harvard Business School and they all had the same convention. So it's like john.smith at HBS, blah, 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 blah. And so I found out a way to like extract all the names. They don't give email addresses, but I was like, I know the template. Like I'll just concatenate. So anyway, I end up with like an 80,000 person email list. And then I use my Harvard alumni email address. So that the domain score, you know, if you, a lot of people mark your, your emails as spam, it hurts your domain tied to your email address. But I was like, yeah, screw it. Like it's my Harvard alumni one. Like, I don't, I don't care. And then I just ruthlessly spammed those lists. You spammed every student and an alumni. Yeah. That's hilarious. But it was like a good, it was like, hey, you know, I, I was undergrad class of 14, you know, I, I have this dream and I'm trying to make it work. Like, would you check it out? Meanwhile, it's like going to like the CEO of like all these very successful companies because so many founders from Harvard. <laughs> But it's like, like if, rent the if one I way now like, got that email, yeah, I would back it. I'd be like, well, of course I would, because I see myself in that person. But I think a lot of people, it's 
it's just like a nice, it's like people like hustle and people, at least enough people like it. A lot of people are like, screw you. Like, how the hell did you get my email address? But there's um, probably a small like unsubscribe. <laughs> well, we got kicked. I got kicked off of MailChimp. They're like, you blatantly broke the rules. Like, you, none of these people opted in. You can't just mass spam people. Because we uploaded the list and said, these people opted in. Like, we right. lied. Right. Um, I mean, they kicked how us else off. do you send the emails? You have to lie on that thing. It's so annoying. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that. And then they kicked us off. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't, I didn't know in your terms of service. It wasn't clear. They're like, okay, we're going to reinstate you. Don't do it again. And then, of course, I proceeded to do You're it like, again. You're like, just another 40,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I But And then, then I kicked us off again. But by then, I had, like, sent everything. I, the right. damage was done. Right. You so got 50 grand on Kickstarter and you're like, fine, MailChimp. Yeah. I don't need you anymore. That was, how, that was how I did it. Nice. For free, by the way. That, all of that costs $0. So you're saying your Kickstarter campaign was mostly successful because of your hack with spamming Harvard students and alumni, basically. And they were basically most of your backers, I assume, on the campaign. Yeah. Right? That's right, which you will never see in any blog post. No one will ever advise you to do that, but that is what happened. But you're hearing it right now, people. Yeah. <laughs> the secrets. Of I have no winning. idea if that's like possible today, by the way. To do what? To do that, to do, I mean. To spam people? Yeah, and like just to get... MailChimp deactivates you and then they reactivate. Like they're just a series of things that. Well, it happens on like LinkedIn. I've gotten blocked from LinkedIn a ton of times where I'm like spamming a ton of people and, you know, sending them messages and like hit limits every day for like a week. And they're like, okay, Lee, you're, you're cut. You're, we're putting no, you on pause. I actually, and you can spam people via mail, like snail yeah. mail. So yeah, no, uh, it's there's always a way. There's always a way in whatever new era. If there's a will, there's a way. Maybe that's what we need to name this episode. No. <laughs> yeah, let's just max out the cliche meter. We'll take you away from Willie. Now, this is your moment to take you to Will and make it. made it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was how I started, and then but and then I raised money. To, this is a super long-winded way of answering your question of how do you raise money. Then I raised money back of that at that at a good valuation and i prorated those sales and i was like okay i'm worth four million bucks you know and i raised money um, that way and then it was like okay how do we get the actual revenue to then raise at a higher valuation and now you're real business and gotta start delivering how do you think of increasing valuation for cpg brands I think about it, I'm a price taker in many respects. So it's like, what is the mark? How does the market think about it? And then how do I map my situation to that? So, I mean, generally speaking, if you're growing fast and you have a good product and good team and all that, at the early stages, at least when in, you know, 2018, 2019, you could get 5X, let's say, sales. So if you're on, on a run rate. That's still pretty high. What kind of growth are we talking here? So when you say growth, what, what kind of metric? do you think of? In 2019, which is our first full year, we were on pace to do something like 2 million, 2.1 million in our first calendar year. And so I actually, at the time I was like, what, well, maybe I could get six X sales and like, and 
projected sales, right? I was projecting to do two point one at the time. I think we were at like, I don't know, a million, let's say. And I got it. So I was like, oh, I'm going to raise a million bucks with 12 million valuation, 6x. But here's why. And we're going to grow this much. And we're going to grow into that valuation. And then we did, by the way. So yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, you look at, take an audit of what the market is bearing and then aim for that most, that, that bleeding edge on the, on the higher end of the valuation curve. See if you can get it. If you can get it. What great. is the curve? Like if you were to create that curve of valuation and you've got the low point and then the six X, which is high, right? Yeah. What's, what's kind of in the middle and what are the growth metrics you feel like that kind of match with those numbers? It's hard for me to say. I think someone in like VC probably or, or someone who sees a ton of deals would maybe give a better answer to this. But from what I gather, I can only give you my experience from basically there's like high growth and not high growth companies. And that you're either in one bucket or the other. So if you're in a high growth, which means roughly speaking 75% or higher year over year growth, then, and you're at an early stage, then you can go after four or five, six X, maybe even seven, eight X if like, if, I don't know, there's a celebrity founder or something like that, but that's, you're in that camp. If you're not high growth, let's say you grew 40% year over year, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at two, three X, you know, ish. So a lot of it is just growth, right? Because if you're growing hundred percent, you'll just double the number you are now. And if, even if someone thinks oh, it's kind of a high valuation, it won't be high in 12 months, which is not a long period of time. So you, you can just, you know, the investor can justify that because it's like, eh, I'll just wait it out 12 months. And I want to be in this company. I want to be in the deal. I believe in it. And in 12 months time, that valuation you thought was high is, is no longer high because the company doubled. Um, but if the company is not, that's, you know, the company's growing 30%, that calculus never occurs in their head. So that's all your story is around growth. It is. And it's so important. And I feel like there's a lot of founders and entrepreneurs that go into business, not really ready or realizing that when you launch, it is go time and you got to freaking move. You got to move, move, move. It's all the momentum and growth that you're talking about because otherwise investors are going to be like, so what happened over the past month? And they're like, oh, well, I was doing this and I was doing that. And, and da, da, da. it's like, oh, okay, well, you're not growing fast. So next, right? Yeah. It's, um, I think, a really rude awakening for a lot of founders. Yeah, it's all, once you turn the spigot on, like it's not turning off. You, in fact, you have to, and increase the intensity of the of the water flow to max out that metaphor. Yeah, the race has begun. The clock is ticking. It is a constant growth, like grow or die, basically, which is exciting, but also a terrible lifestyle, very stressful. What's a moment that really, really was hard for you to overcome? Like what was one of the most challenging moments in building this business? Because you launched in 2000, what, you said 18, 17? It, yeah, did the Kickstarter Jan of Jan 2018 and fulfilled their first order mid-2018, so. So you've been at it a few years, you know, what, looking back, what was one of the most, you know, difficult moments? 
there's so many. Like we had this crate, the one I, the anecdote I give uh, when most of the time when people ask me about this, there was this one. We don't want that one. We want the one you never talk about. <laughs> I don't talk about it that much. The one you're afraid to tell. That's what we want. So basically that one was like a, a rapper's didn't seal and we we're fulfilling this order for CBS and we're all high-fiving until the guy walks up to us and he's like, hey, your rappers aren't sealing. And it was like, everything's busted. This was our biggest deal. This was existentially important. So yeah, that's one I tell more often, but one I never tell. I, maybe one that was more like emotionally driven. Maybe it was like something that like a with an employee that was a real hit in the head or like, you know, some, I don't know, just. I mean, that is brutal. The whole human side of it is brutal. That's to because me you, more brutal than any other like thing that can kind of be fixed from a business perspective, you know? Well, yeah, I'm like a 20 at the time started it when I was 26. You know, I'm a young guy and I'm hiring people older than me, which is weird in and of itself. And then you get into these periods where you're like, it's so weird because you're their boss, but you'll get to points where you look up to them, interestingly, because maybe they've been in the industry for X amount of years and you think they know more than you do. But then you get good enough and knowledgeable enough where you're like, wait, actually, I know more than this person, or at least I know enough to be able to evaluate this person. And maybe this person isn't the right person for the job, or maybe they were the right person six months ago and we've doubled and now they're not because there's a new set of requirements of this role. And then you're like, oh shit, like I have to fire this person. I, and that's like a gut wrenching. And by the way, usually it's not like that. It's you drag it out six months. Maybe this person can evolve. They'll change. Yeah. They'll change. No one changes. No one changes. Some people change, but it's a small enough percentage that you, it might as well be true that no one changes. Which is kind of sad because then how do people move up? right? Like how do people grow and learn? What do you think holds people back from changing? Okay. I think skills change, but the person doesn't change. So, so you're talking about cultural fit. Yeah. Cultural fit. And just like the fire with it, like some of the motivational makeup, what like, are they a doer? Do they, do they care about their career? Let's start there. You know, I would argue most people don't actually truly care. They work to live. So I guess the first cut is, do you live to work? Which I actually don't think is as depressing as it sounds. But like I work to live, uh, I live to work because I love working. Like that's like what I enjoy. So and at a startup level, you want people who live to work. Like they like their pat. They're passionate about being part of a really cool project that's doing a cool thing. So, but anyway, find, find, find the right people. And then you quite literally can't afford to like hang on to people if it's not working. And so you just, yeah, I mean, you, you have to fire people. You have to have hard conversations with people. I've had some gnarly, gnarly interactions that were not fun in retrospect. Someone told me this the other day and I, I it really stuck with me. They're like, almost never does someone regret firing someone almost never and I thought about it for a while I was like whoa yeah like 
I literally can't think of one case where that where someone regretted that. And then of course that begs the question who if you're wondering like, oh, is this the right move? It's almost if you're thinking that way, it is the right move. And so the sooner you do it, the better. So yeah, I think that the human capital decisions are are the most gut-wrenching, but also the most important. Yeah, those are the tough ones. I feel like tough conversations, tough to, I mean, you're dealing with people's livelihoods. Yeah, and you be compassionate about it. It's hard not to be taking it personal. You're on the other end of that. And you should take it personal. You know, if you didn't, that'd be weird. Clearly it wasn't a fit. So how do you as a leader kind of have show compassion in those scenarios? There's no good way. I mean, the, the obvious things, be nice about it. Like the whole shit sandwich compliment, shit compliment <laughs> thing. But, you know, you be compassionate at, at, in the most obvious ways. But I think more broadly, be incredibly objective. Be incredibly objective. Like, here's the deal. We're a startup. Here's literally how much bank, how, how much we have in our bank account. Here's why it's not working. We talked about this happening. This didn't happen. This is not going to be a good place for you over, like, I'd be doing this disservice to you if you were staying here because you're not going to grow. It's not going to be good for you in any way. And candidly, it's, it's not great for us for these very specific reasons. And that has no bearing on your ability to be successful elsewhere. It just does, unfortunately, have a bearing on your ability to be successful here at this point in time with our current financial situation and team structure and yada, yada. Like, just be very objective about all the, here's all the data points. Here's why the decision was made. Of course, the response is, you're making a huge mistake. Here's why. People have very different reactions, but or maybe they're just, what if they're just like, all right, I'm out. That has happened too. <laughs> that has happened too. Yeah, I get you have a mix. You, you know, you always get a mix of um, personalities and how they deal with rejection, essentially, right? It's like getting kicked in the gut. To some degree, unless they've been warned to, so many times that it's just an obvious train coming, right? Yeah. To some degree, it can't, it's never a surprise, unless it's like a, you know, the market craps the bed and we literally don't have the runway and then it's a layoff, layoff type thing. But, but if it's not, then it's never that much of a surprise. Yeah. So, but that's brutal. And it's also crazy when you're like such a small team or we're, we're a seven person team. And so like you let one person go, like that's a huge chunk here. Oh yeah. Company. Right. It's not like you're a thousand person company and you had to let two people go, you know? So it's, it's like losing one of your fingers or something. Right. Right. Everyone's like, what happened to Johnny? Where'd he go? We miss him. You know? Yeah. Or not. Or not. Maybe, yeah, or not. So before we wrap up, what is, you know, you've shared a lot of great advice. What what other kind of final insights or advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? And what is next for IQ Bar? Other than rebranding. I'm just kidding. 
yeah, I mean, that's, that is next. I mean, we, we, I won't go into, I mean, we want to own, we want to get to $50 million of annual revenue. We want to own this brain and body nutrition space. We want to be sold in 50 million by the end of this year. No, no, no. Our goal would be by the end of next year to be doing in the high twenties, maybe if we really crush it, like let's say 30 million a year. And then in 2024, we hit 50. That That's the, you know, North Star for us. So yeah, that, that's the goal. But what's next? I mean, you asked earlier, what, like, are, is there any other advice? I would say one key piece of advice is just to understand the lifestyle implications. Like I said it earlier, it's an objectively on paper, terrible lifestyle. I chose it and would choose it again. But you gotta understand the second, third, fourth order consequences of that path. What are the consequences of the lifestyle? I mean, you lose a lot of friendships. You don't go. You go to one tenth of the events and trips and fill in the blanks that you would have. You quote unquote sacrifice your twenties or you know however you define that. Yeah. You know, I was listening to, I'm, I'm listening and slash reading this um, book called Super Founders. And it's all about this like data behind billion dollar founders. And it talked about this, like, I think it was the founders of Brex yeah. and how they started the company and they're like 18, 19, like super young. And the guy, I feel like he kind of regrets not having his twenties, right? I mean, Building a business is so hard. It's it takes so much time. And like you said, there's lifestyle implications. And I just feel like these young kids that are being told to drop out of college and start a company, I'm like, no, if you're gonna drop out of college, totally fine. But travel the world, like go do things that are fun and meet people and build a network and have fun. Because when you start working and you're in that grind, you're like in it. And what are you gonna do? Travel the I guess you could, you know sell your company and whatever, hopefully it makes it. And then you sell it and can travel and have fun. But then you're like in your thirties and I don't know, just live life as a kid. Yeah, no, I agree. I Look, I, uh, I took full advantage of the college experience in every way, shape or and form. So I'm with you. Like if you're under 25 travel, just keep traveling until you're sick of traveling. If that's what you're into, like, I don't like travel. I mean, I, it's fine. Like, <laughs> do you, do, but, you don't do, like traveling? I don't like traveling. I don't like like living out of a suitcase and getting on planes and like getting on weird. Well, you don't trains. have to go like somewhere new every day, but like study abroad in Paris, like just go somewhere for a few months. I don't know. I think it's important to get cultured, especially yeah, for people that your don't. Horizons. Yes. Especially for people who I grew up in a small town small everything, you know, it's, it was important for me to get the hell out and, and see the world. Right. And it's easier than ever to do that. We're not our parents' generation. So we should be going and doing stuff and seeing stuff and experiencing cultures and, and making friends with all types of people. I agree. And this is not even like, this is in the same spirit, but a very different example, example, which is like, let's say you want to be an entrepreneur. Don't just go start the company. Go get a job. So do the travel thing. Okay, now I'm ready to be a professional. Get a job. Like, have a boss. Learn that it kind of sucks having a boss. 
I'll go into an office. Of course, this is like weird in the whole remote working context, but have an office, have a commute, like just understand how the world works in that way. And how do you interact with coworkers? What's a meeting like? How do you lead a meeting? All of that. I think it's really weird for, let's take the Brex guys. Like they never had that. They were just like, oh, I'm 18. And now all these. Well, no, they, they actually had a great exit even before then and before Brex. It's insane. So they actually had a lot of experience that led to building Brex. But I mean, I freaking didn't even know how to sell, like send a calendar invite before I started my first company. (laughs) So you can do it, but it is a lot harder. You've got to self-teach yourself everything. I'll be honest. I think maybe they weren't. Like, who's doing that at 18? It's like, you're not having fun. I I don't know. Like, you're kind of hanging out in your basement. And you're like twiddling your thumbs and like, okay, I'm going to like spend 90% of my time on this project. I don't know. I think it might map to like certain people who are just wired to do that and without them doing that they wouldn't have had fun anyway you know it's like was that were they gonna go travel like maybe maybe not I I don't know maybe that's just their straight up their disposition yeah you could be yeah that could be it where I'm like a major extrovert so if I'm not out with people I'm basically dying (laughs) Well, podcast is a good outlet for that. It is. It's it's fun to meet awesome people and entrepreneurs like you. So now that we're we're at time though, so do you have any? What's your final advice? You were you were kind of you were fine. You're like telling it, and then I took it and I went on a, a tangent. Well, I well, the piece of advice was like understand the lifestyle implications. Final piece of advice: find a good partner. Find a good partner. Business partner. Life partner. In my case, romantic partner, romantic partner, you know, how romantic I'll leave that to you, you know, you the <laughs> audience members, but in my case is both a business partner and a romantic partner, AKA wife. That's a critical piece of the equation. If you can make it work, if you can thread that needle or you work with your spouse, it's either the worst decision you'll ever make or the best decision you'll, you'll ever make. In my experience, the latter I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs who get divorced and burn all their bridges. And so for whatever reason that like it's worked out for me, but forget the working together piece for a second, like just find the right partner because yeah, one person and body can only take so much. Like it's, you're going to be burning the wick at both ends and the whole burnout thing is real and you need to make sure that your setup is sustainable and i think critical critical component to that is your significant other yeah even if they're just a supportive person you know i was a solo founder that my husband was like i'm starting a company (laughs) it's like wait what (laughs) you're not gonna have a salary for uh how long but yeah it's important to have that support system and actually, I think a lot of spouses are have very complementary skill sets. So it can be very tempting to want to start something with your spouse. Yeah, that's definitely true with us. That's definitely true with us. I find it with a lot of co-founders, even on the show, that have 
there's a lot of co-founders that have their co-founder is a spouse. Like the, I feel like more now that maybe it's just, is it consumer? Like, is that the space that everybody just like decides to build with their spouse in? Cause I don't see it a lot in tech. And I think a lot of VCs are kind of, well, they used to not be on board with it. Obviously I think it's happened so much now that they've maybe lost that, but it used to be like a couple of years ago, like a really bad thing. It would be hard to fundraise. Yeah. That's interesting. Like I said, it's, it's, either really good or really bad. Like I can see why it would be a terrible thing. It, it entirely depends on the people, but it's like very equity efficient, shall we say. Your incentives are as aligned as incentives can be. And there's all these other, you both want each other to win. You can be honest with each other, right? How, how many, like you can't go into an office and actually tell your boss what you think. Yeah, so so there's all these like quirky advantages to it. But again, like I don't want to get too specific because it's that's this isn't an option for probably 90% of people, but just yeah, to to use your words, create a support system. I guess it doesn't have to be your spouse, it could be friends or family or whatever, just some outlet to blow off steam with bounce ideas off of and bounce ideas off of, yeah. Yeah. Something, everything. Very like touchy feely advice. I I I bet you wanted a, a a hack that's a bit better than that, but that's no. I think this show is a little more touchy feely, to be honest. Like I try to keep it more human. You know, like there's so many things. If you want to know how to do something tactical, you can Google it, right? But I think a lot of the emotional things and the mindset and the whole the storytelling and a lot of the challenges, these aren't really written in TechCrunch or on in press articles, right? And that's the kind of nitty gritty stuff I like to talk about. So cool. thanks. Happy to oblige. Well, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate you um, sharing your story. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.